amazing, Nicole, to be here today. Uh, as Mary Kay said, we are in the middle, actually moving towards the end of a four-week series called Prayer in Four Acts, and we're using the acronym ACTS as kind of a guide or a pattern to help us uh, learn how to pray. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the first act, which is adoration. Uh, we adore God for all that he is and all that he's done. Last week, we talked about act two, which is confession. We don't have to live in guilt, but we uh, run to God, we admit our sins, and, and we leave feeling a deep sense of freedom and joy. And this morning, what we want to spend a little bit of time thinking about is the concept of thankfulness. How does a person become more thankful? And just like the guy in the film that we saw this morning, sometimes it's, it's easier in life to feel more discouraged than grateful. And, and I like that video very much because it reminds us to be aware of things in life that we tend to take for granted. We have so much to be thankful for, don't we? But you know, there's something that I want you to notice about that video. There's one thing about it that is kind of a glaring problem, actually, and that is this. Everything that was mentioned in that video, every single thing can be lost. I mean, if this guy in, in the video has a debilitating accident and he injures his health and loses his job and his friends are gone and he doesn't have the kind of freedom that he does in the life that's illustrated there now, then what's the poor guy supposed to do, right? The Bible is absolutely brimming with examples of gratitude to God, and it does tell us that we ought to give thanks always and for everything, and so we're encouraged to be thankful for all that we have. But what's interesting is that the writers of the Bible themselves, what, what they seem to be most thankful for and excited about the place that for them, their, their deepest gratitude lies is not just in all the things that they have, but it's specifically in the things that in Christ they cannot lose. And the wellspring or the heart of gratitude in the Bible doesn't seem to be found just in noticing all the little things that we see around us. It's found in embracing unseen things things that lie yet ahead of us. And that's what I want to think a little bit about this morning. Uh, the purpose of this morning isn't necessarily to grow our gratitude wider as it is in the video. Now, I'm not saying that that's not a good thing to do and, and that that doesn't have some value. I think it does. But what we want to think about this morning is having a gratitude that is more deeply rooted. And I think the text in 1 Peter uh, verses 3 through 5 can really help us uh, with that. So I want to give you just a little bit of background on the book of First Peter. Uh, it was written by the same Peter that we read about in the Gospels and particularly towards the beginning of the book of Acts. He was one of Jesus' disciples, a very close friend of Jesus, and he's writing in the book of First Peter to Christians who were in a place called Asia Minor, which today would be called uh, Northern Turkey. And for these Christians that, that Peter was writing to, life was really tough. 
uh, there was persecution in that area, and some of those people were very discouraged and down, in part because they were in an environment that, that didn't uh, make gratitude come to them very naturally. Now, Peter was a little ways away in Rome, and he was facing an even greater persecution at the time. Uh, you may have heard of a man whose name was Emperor Nero, who would uh, bring persecution to Christians in a way that had never been seen before. He was just new uh, in his reign, we think, and he was beginning to persecute in Rome where, where Peter was. And so what Peter's trying to do in the book of 1 Peter is he's trying to help these people to, to have some hope and to find some strength so that they might be able to endure this persecution. And what he begins with in 1 Peter is something for them to be grateful for. And the letter begins, as is customary in most, if not all of the letters in the New Testament, with some greetings. And then right out of the gate, Peter says, Blessed be God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what he does is he begins praising God with joy. And what he's most glad for, we find here, is something that he calls our living hope. And what I want to kind of submit this morning is this, is that if you're a person who's in this room who considers yourself to be a Christian, and if you had one thing to choose to be most grateful for in all of your life, this concept of a living hope would probably be a great answer. In fact, it might be the best answer. And so, Today, what I want to do is I want to just look at these three short verses. I I had intended actually to speak on on the whole paragraph that's here, but um, there's just so much in these first three that I I, I don't have time to get to the rest. But in in verse 3, what happens is Peter introduces this concept of a living hope. Then in verse 4, he tells us what the hope is. And in verse 5, he tells us how it's meant to live uh, inside of us, how it lives. And so... First of all, in verse 3, he tells us that we are born again into a living hope. If you look there, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, so he starts out by describing the mercy of God. Without the mercy of God, none of this would be possible. And mercy basically just means that God does not give us what it is that we deserve. Uh, I was listening to the radio a few months ago, and there was a story that really caught my attention uh, about a nursing home in California. And what happened was the nursing home uh, ran out of money, and so the owners decided to close the place, and the staff left the building, and the the whole thing was just abandoned. But some of the residents had no place to go, and they ended up just being stuck there in this empty, deserted building with no staff or or nobody to do anything for them. And uh, there was a man who was there who was a cook, who I guess he was packing up to leave, and he noticed that nobody was going to be around to care for these people, And he was afraid that they might try to make some food and and burn the whole place down in the kitchen. And so this single man, this this cook, teamed up with a janitor. And these guys, without anybody knowing about it, 
and for no pay whatsoever, worked 24-hour shifts in this nursing home to care for the people who were left that had no place to go. So they made them food, they delivered their medication, they cleaned up after them. And this story was found out in California, and it actually ended up uh, changing the laws so that it was no longer legal for a nursing home to close down without taking care of the residents first. And these guys really were heroes. But, I, but in this interview, um, they, they talked with one of the men, and, and they said to him, why did you stay when everyone else left? And he said that when he was young, he had been abandoned by his parents. And he said that he didn't want any of those residents to experience the same thing. So what you've got there is you've got this situation that is going to end tragically. In fact, it's probably going to end in death for somebody. And these two men care. They step in, and the trajectory of the entire situation is changed. It goes in a different direction. And that's what God's mercy is like. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that we deserve to be left to our own devices and failures. Every one of us deserves to die in our sin. But God steps in and he says, I'm not going to let this thing play out the way that it's heading. And Jesus comes to earth on a rescue mission. At the cross, he takes the bullet that was meant for us. He dies in our place for our sin. He cleans up our mess. And when we are down the most, he lifts us up. When we need him the most, he comes to our rescue. And this phrase that that Peter uses, it describes how this forgiveness, this rescuing work of God changes everything for us. He says, we're born again. And this is a really uh, powerful phrase that unfortunately is kind of cliched in our culture It's been overused or used wrongly or something. I don't know. But people don't, they aren't impacted by that phrase the way we ought to be. Uh, Last week in the second service, there was a girl in our high school group who was baptized named Taylor. And she said that the reason, the, the, the reason that she ended up trusting Christ to forgive her sins is she came to a point where she said, the life that I have is not the one that I want. And God would say to people like that, great, you don't have to keep it. Let's start all over again. Why don't you allow me to trade in your broken life for a new one? And what's that? That's like, the Bible says, it's, it's like going all the way back to your birth and having an opportunity to start all over again, but this time with a different result. And this new birth brings with it something that Peter calls a living hope, okay? So this living hope is both a hope, okay, which means that it's something that is for the future that's living, which means that it's not just for the future. It's something for now, too. It's, it's real, and it's tangible, and it's practical for every day. And, and he says it's based on the resurrection of Christ. In other words, he says that, that this living hope is as certain as Christ himself is alive. He says it's a sure thing because it's based on the resurrection of Christ. And so today, again, I want to think about what is this hope and how should it live and how does that bring 
uh, within us a deepened, heightened sense of gratitude. So the living hope points to something that's ahead of us, and it also points to something that's within us. Those are the two things I want to think about. The living hope is something that's ahead of us, and it's something that's within us. Now, what's ahead of us is described in verse 4. Peter says, again, we were born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Okay, so what Peter says is that our hope is in an inheritance, right? A fully realized inheritance. Now, an inheritance carries with us the idea of a family gift. Uh, I remember as a kid, my father and I used to shoot BB guns together sometimes. And uh, he gave me one that was a pistol. And it was really like a pea shooter. You know, you, you'd shoot it, and it would just sort of go like this when it, was, when it was pumped the most. So as long as you wanted to kill, like, something that was on the ground right in front of you, you could do it. But he had a BB gun that was a rifle, you know, and he'd pump the thing up, and it, it really shot very hard. Um, my, my father used to tell me, you know, you've got to be real careful with this. And he had a story that he was once shot in the eye with a BB gun, and it went right into his eye. And they, they took it out with a magnet. You know, it just missed his eye, but it got lodged into his eye, so he would kind of give me that speech. And I was always a little bit jealous, you know, because he had this big, big, more powerful BB gun. And I remember him letting me shoot it every once in a while. And I remember him saying, do you like, do you like this? And I said, yeah. And he said, good. He said, because someday it's going to be yours. And I can remember him saying that with different things uh, throughout my life. Well, That is the idea that Peter is trying to get across in this passage. He says, there is something that one day will be yours. And what he's talking about here is a kingdom. Peter is saying, there is a kingdom that will one day be yours. It is your inheritance. And he starts to describe it. And the words that he uses, if you think about them, are quite stirring and powerful. He says, your inherent inheritance is imperishable. Everything else in life is falling apart, but this never will. I mean, think about it right now. You're sitting back against a chair, and your clothes are rubbing against that chair and wearing out. Uh, Your car is out in the parking lot right now, rusting away, okay? Your your food is in your home at this moment in your refrigerator, slowly expiring, okay? Every single thing in this life is on a downward trajectory, including us. As we get older, we start to notice that more and more, that it's true about our bodies, right? Some of us in this room more than others, okay? (laughs) <laughs> you see, when we think about life, one of the things that's so depressing and discouraging about it at times is that this life is perishable. It is wasting away, and there's nothing that we can do about it. But Peter says, your inheritance, the kingdom of heaven, cannot be corrupted, and it cannot be decayed. It is indestructible and imperishable. 
And as if he has to say more, he says, it's also undefiled. In other words, he says, it's never going to be anything less than perfect. Do you know what the most perfectly round object is in all the universe, natural object? You might think it's the earth, but the earth is actually not very round. It's sort of, it's sort of uh, squashed and bumpy. Actually, the most perfect natural object in the universe is the sun. And this was actually a great surprise to scientists. Uh, what they assumed was that the sun would uh, shift in its uh, shape all the time because it's made up of gas. But actually, the sun is a mere perfect round object with only the slightest bulge at the center of its equator. Uh, that bulge, they estimate, is about 10, uh, 10 kilometers around. And so if the sun were a beach ball, it would be like just an imperfection that is the size of a human hair. Okay? But what Peter is saying here is he's saying God's kingdom is flawless. There is absolutely no imperfection. There's no bulge whatsoever. And what he isn't just saying by that is that if you go to the kingdom of heaven, there's no gum on the streets. What he's trying to say is this, is that you cannot ask for anything more. It is already absolutely perfect and flawless, and everything that you could hope for in the kingdom of heaven is realized perfectly. There's nothing you could ever imagine to want. The kingdom of heaven, he says, your inheritance is undefiled. And he goes on again as if that's not enough. And he says it's also unfading. Your inheritance can never fade. Uh, when my wife and I were married uh, and went on our honeymoon, we went to Florida and we decided we would try to rent a house in Florida. And so we looked around um, online in advance and we found a house that was really cool, or at least looked really cool online, but we couldn't afford it. And so I said, you know, honey, I'm just going to write to them, and it can't hurt to ask. Maybe there's nobody else who's going to take it, and they'll accept what we would offer for it. And so I did that, and the woman was really nice, and she said, okay, yeah, sure, we'll do it. You can come, and you can stay here. And so we, we went to Florida, you know, after our wedding, and uh, rented a car, and, and we went to this house, and it was in a gated community. And so we pulled up to this gate, and I had to, to type in a code. And I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. You know, I, I got to type in a code. This is really something. And we drove to the house, and we walked into the house, and the house was spectacular. I mean, it was just a beautiful, beautiful house. And my wife and I, it was kind of like, you know, pinch ourselves. We couldn't believe that we got to stay in this place. And, and it was really great. Well, what I noticed was a few days into staying here, I, I, we were going back home after being out, and, and we stopped at the code thing, and I was like, man, I do have to punch in this code, really? You know, and I, I drove into the house, and I really noticed this when I walked into the door. I remember feeling this thought, like, like you know what? This house is really great, and we're so happy to be here, but even after just a few days, now it, it's just the place that we stay, right? And it's really nice, but the wow factor sort of faded and wore away. What Peter is saying here is that the kingdom of heaven is not like that. When you arrive in the kingdom of heaven, it will blow your mind. And then 10,000 years later, 
it will still blow your mind. The joy of heaven, the enthusiasm that we will feel for our heavenly home will never grow dim. It will never grow duller. It will never pay or fade. It is, it is unlike anything else that's in our world. It isn't imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And then finally he says, and, and this just, just takes, brings it home. He says, it's being kept for us. It's being kept for us. And this little phrase is so important because what good is having all of that if we can lose it? If I were to um, give you a million dollars right now in like a paper lunch sack, okay? It's all $100 bills. It's a million of them. And I just handed it to you and I said, I'd like you to have this this morning. Um, it would feel great, right? I mean, it would make your day. But wouldn't you be a little nervous about it? I mean, wouldn't you be thinking to yourself, literally, if you're sitting in, in the service right now, like, boy, I, I kind of hope this gets over quick because I'm a little nervous carrying around this million dollars. You know, what if Jeremy steals it? Or um, what if I, I misplace it? Or what if some of it falls out? And I guarantee you that the first thing that you would do as soon as you had the opportunity would be to go to the bank, right? Because once that million dollars has been deposited, it changes everything, and you feel secure. Because what you know is that it's being kept for you, right? That million dollars is reserved with your name on it. No one can take it away. It cannot be lost. And again, that's what Peter is trying to get at here. Think about the people that he's writing to for just a second, okay? These are Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. They're poor, they don't have much, they're fearful, they're in danger, they're worried not just about their own future, but they're worried about the future of their families and their friends. And, and with these words, what Peter does for them is he gives them this incredible assurance. There are, right now, in our world, people who are being persecuted like that. In fact, I've, I've heard statistics that, say, that say that that the persecution in all of history is the worst right now in our age. And if we could visit someone who's being persecuted from their faith today in prison, think for just a second. Again, I don't mean to rip on this video that, that we watched, but think about how trite it would feel for them to watch a video like that. Think about that for just a second. I mean, they'd watch it and they'd think, well, well, be thankful for my job? What job? They'd say, be thankful for my freedom? I have none. Be thankful for my friends? My friends shunned me years ago. Be thankful for my health? I've been beaten and I'm being starved. Be thankful for oxygen? I think I'd rather have none and die, right? And what Peter's answer to this problem is, is, is not just count your blessings, right? He's not saying to people, just be more thankful for all that you have. And, and you who sit in prison, be, be thankful that you've got a dirt floor and, and not a mud floor, right? Look at, look at the bright side. Look at the silver lining. What Peter says is this, is he says, be thankful that all that you have 
is not all that you have. He says, be thankful that a kingdom that cannot be shaken is being kept for you. And no amount of pain or torture can diminish that reality in any way. No enemy can tamper with it. Nothing can cause it to fade. It is our indestructible hope. And the things that the Bible encourages us most to be thankful for are able to hold up even in the most devastating circumstances of life, even when we lose everything else. And these promises are the most precious thing in all the world because nothing can take them away. If you are a believer in Jesus, if if God has made you his own, then nobody can steal that from you. And like my dad, what Peter says is, someday it will be yours. That's our hope. But he goes on and he talks that, that, that this hope is not, again, just for the future. It's for now, too. It's not just something that's meant to be ahead of us. It's also something that is within us. And what he tells us about that is in verse 5. I'm going to start in verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, so what, what what Peter says is this, is he says that God is standing watch over your soul. Okay, this is how this hope lives. God is standing watch over your soul. Okay, so he says that between now and the time when your salvation is revealed, okay, final salvation, we call that glorification. That's when I'm in heaven finally, when you see it. He says between now and that time, you are being guarded by God. Uh, the, The NIV translates this world as shielded, and the idea that it carries is that of a garrison, okay? A garrison is a military command post that is within a city, and it protects and defends that city against an attack. I, there was a commercial that I think was shown uh, during the Super Bowl that you may have seen. It was for the Navy, and it's got a, a woman with her two kids, and she's sort of standing uh, in the middle of a city. And then around her, these people start appearing, and there are all these people who serve in the Navy. You know, they do different jobs, and they, they start forming these concentric circles around this woman and her children. And at the end of the commercial, what the narrator says is, to get to you, they've got to get past us. It's a good commercial, and that's the idea. Uh, I recently heard a talk by a woman whose name was um, Joni Erickson Tada. Didn't hear the whole thing, but I heard a part of it. And some of you would probably be familiar with this woman. She, in 1967, was in a terrible diving accident at the age of 17. And she was paralyzed. She became a quadriplegic. She uh, has spent her life living in a wheelchair, and she has no use of her uh, hands. Well, in this talk, she was describing that three years ago, she was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer, right? And after everything that she'd experienced all of her life, this was a major blow to her. She was very discouraged by this. And 
she, she was thinking back in this talk to a day when she was coming home from chemotherapy and her husband was driving her home in a van that they had that was built just for her disability. And she said that she was in her wheelchair tied up in the back so that she wouldn't roll around. And they were having a conversation through the rear view mirror talking. And she said she was at rock bottom at that point. She felt sick and nauseous and weak and tired. She said that the, her hair was falling out. Her bones were growing thin. She had pneumonia at the time and also a bladder infection. Okay, she was in terrible shape. And she said that she and her husband, whose name was Ken, were, describing, uh, were discussing suffering. And the conclusion that they came to, she said, in this conversation is that suffering is like a little splashover of hell, reminding you of the hell that Christ ultimately rescued you from. That was really good. Well, they kept driving, she said, and, and they pulled into the driveway and continued to talk, and the conversation changed. And she said, well, well what are the splashovers of heaven? If suffering is the splashover of hell, what are the splashovers of heaven? And they began to talk about that. I, I want to just quote what she said about that here. She said, are the splashovers of heaven days when everything is easy and breezy and bright, when all is going your way, when the bills are paid, smiles come easy, there are no conflicts. Are those splashovers of heaven? And in the quiet, we decided, no. No, that's not it. A splashover of heaven is finding Jesus in your splashover of hell. She said, nothing is more precious, from her experience, nothing is more precious than finding Jesus standing with you in your splashover of hell. That's what Peter is saying here. That Jesus will always stand with you. But that he's not just looking on from above, sending you care packages every once in a while when you need them. Peter would say, no, it's much more than that. He's present with you. But it's not just that either. That Jesus is aware of every joy and sorrow, every temptation and struggle in your life. Yes, but it's not just that either. What this tells us is that he's also actively protecting you. That he stands guard over your soul that no matter what you might face, however fearful or paralyzing it might be, Peter says, it cannot overcome you. Within you, there stands a mighty garrison. And within that garrison, in strength and majesty, is the power of God himself. And that's how our hope lives. The number one command in all the Bible is don't be afraid. And I think part of the reason why is right here in this passage. God actively guards his people. And, and so this, this is our living hope. It's a promise for tomorrow that's being guarded today. So just a couple of final thoughts here about that. Um, I don't know if you're anything like me, but gratitude does not always come naturally to me. 
Uh, I think that most people are like that. We sometimes feel more like the guy in the video, right? We're more discouraged than we are grateful. And did you notice at the end of the day, he's saying the same thing that he did at the end of the day before? All the things that he has around him, he's kind of missed, right? Gratitude, it's hard to get gratitude to really penetrate the depth of our heart. And in prayer, I think when it comes to praying with gratitude, sometimes it's it's easy for us to mouth those words of things that we're thankful for, but to not really feel it in our hearts. It's easy to be ingenuine and to kind of go through the motions. And sometimes in life, if we're honest, just noticing the little things doesn't always seem to help all that much. Right? We, we know that we should be grateful and thankful for our kids, but sometimes they can be so challenging, right? We want to be more thankful for our marriage, but it's hard when we're not getting along. We know that we should be thankful that we can read, but we're just so sick of typing email. <laughs> we know that we should be thankful that we can walk, but this morning we just don't feel like getting out of bed. And sometimes we want to be grateful for the things that are around us, but we just can't seem to get our hearts to warm up. Do you ever feel that way? you ever have that problem? I think that what Peter would encourage us to do when we feel that way is this. It is to plant our feet firmly in our living hope. To take a step back, reflect on the mercy of God. That when I was down, he lifted me up. That when I needed him most, he rescued me. That we would consider the love of God the horrors of the cross, the joy of the resurrection, that I would begin to think about what's behind me, right? My sin, my old life, it's gone. But what's ahead of me, this imperishable inheritance, the kingdom that cannot be shaken, and what's within me, Peter says, the power of God. And hopefully what that begins to do is it begins to humble us. And that that thankfulness, that gratitude would begin to stir naturally within our hearts. And that as that gratitude begins to well up, hopefully it's genuine uh, gratitude that it would begin to spread to. And, and like Peter, in verse 3, we would say, blessed be the God, our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what he says is, thank you, thank you. So what we do, in other words, with this living hope is, is really simple. We do everything that we can to let it live. We do everything that we can to make it the primary thing that we're grateful for. We take joy definitely in all that I have, but we, in all that we have, but we delight the most in the things that we cannot lose. And so this morning, just like last week, what I want to do is I, I just want to give us a couple of minutes to spend a little bit of time uh, quietly walking through the tea, the, the thankfulness uh, in prayer. And so the band is going to come up again uh, just for a couple minutes, but I want to invite you just to spend some time thanking God for the living hope and anything else you want.